Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. And now we welcome all of you on Bloomberg Television and Radio Worldwide. Uh, Tom Keene in conversation with a gentleman retiring today, but you know he will never slip away from the financial analysis of his CFA Institute. Bill Gross joins us with Janice Anderson. I guess, Bill, congratulations on retirement. I want to get to the track record, the challenges you've had at Janice Anderson. But how did you get here? How was this decision made in the last number of days? Did you make this unilaterally? Did you make this with Janice Henderson management? Well, no, I did it unilaterally and in combination with uh, my family and my uh, partner, Amy Schwartz, who I'm having uh, so much fun with. Um, you know, it's been almost a half a century of watching screens, Tom, and yeah. waking up in the middle of the night to check Asia and Europe and then Tom Brady equivalent years. That's that's a long time. Um, I've got a few Super Bowl rings along the way to look at, and it's uh, time to enjoy myself and enjoy my family. Within this is the catalyst of outflows of funds. Was it harder to manage the Janus Unconstrained Fund, given the repeated and chronic outflows that you've seen over the last uh, number of quarters and even years? Well, not really. I mean, half, half of the fund is mine, and, and I haven't uh, taken any money out of the fund. Others have, as you've mentioned. I, you know, I look back on it, uh, and the performance on the unconstrained fund in the past four years with Janice is, uh, has been uh, unsatisfactory, no doubt, but still positively um, uh, positive in normal and nominal terms. Um, what I'd like to mention, though, is I, I've managed some total return accounts, what I'm famous for. Uh, for Janus, and, and they've outperformed uh, like the old right. days at uh, PIMCO, 100 basis points over, and actually outperformed PIMCO. So maybe I should have stuck to total return and well, been a little more constrained. This is this is a really important point, folks, and that Mr. Gross has a number of ideas going here, including the, you know fighting the uh, the fixed income battles, the fixed income wars of uh, mutual funds. But I was talking with our John Gittleson in Los Angeles, uh, Bill, and within the unconstrained model, the prospectus model of this phrase unconstrained, what did you learn about the pros and cons, the difficulties of this phrase unconstrained? Well, unconstrained uh, has come to mean uh, basically go anywhere. Um, you know, the total return concept that I developed was was right. really developed on a concept of measured risk-taking. It's what I learned in the days of blackjack. You didn't put a lot on the table. And so, you know, for the past three or four years, the the negative trade for unconstrained has always been Germany versus the uh, United States in terms of a spread. Ten-year uh, German bunds started out uh, in my portfolio at uh, 190 basis points over, and they're now... Uh, 250 plus over. And so that's been a, you know, it's been the big decider and, and probably one in which uh, I shouldn't well, put too many chips on the table. Well, this is critical, Bill, and this goes to the hedge funds and so many underperformances of hedge funds, depending on whatever you want to look at uh, with the statistics. Was the underperformance that you faced in the last year with unconstrained, 
Was it because you were not diversified? Is it, is it the, the phrase unconstrained gets you into a focus where the bets are too big to go back to Ed Thorpe? Yeah, I think it did for me uh, and perhaps for other unconstrained funds too, uh, if only by the, the nature of the term. Um, you know, the, the old Ed Thorpe terms, the gambler's ruin concept basically said you could only bet uh, 2% of your total right. capital. And, and, and certainly I had uh, positions in unconstrained. There were significantly more than that, especially the, the German-U.S. Treasury trade. And that uh, you know, probably was too much. But um, it was an unconstrained portfolio. Investors were expecting hedge fund types of returns of 5 to 10%. Well... And, you know, for a while, for a while there, it was only uh, one to two percent, and that uh, was unsatisfactory. It was unsatisfactory, and Bill, this goes to your perspective now. And we should point out that Mr. Gross has written all sorts of academic work for the CFA Institute over the years on finance, on the integrity of financial theory. You've lived it, Bill. Is the hedge fund model broken because it's a non-diversified model? Well, I, I think it was broken for a long time, Tom. Uh, you know, obviously the hedge fund concept suggested long and short, but it was really one in which uh, managers took a lot of risk. Yes. And so when you speak to diversification, you know, perhaps most of those uh, hedge funds were non-diversified in terms of the risk that they were taking. They were taking levered risk and still are. And so to the extent that uh, markets move in and uh, risk-off type of mode, and they have uh, in December and um, uh, other periods of time, then uh, the hedge fund concept is really a, an exposure of risk uh, as opposed to mm -hmm. um, anything else, and it, and it needs to be more diversified for sure. If you're just joining us, William Gross with us, of course, with Janice Henderson. He announces his retirement today, uh, a very young 74, under 75 years old. Of course, this after four and five decades of work. We continue now with Bill Gross, welcoming all of you on Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio uh, worldwide. Uh, Bill Gross, if we look at the investment, the recent investment, investment return in that. You mentioned the German trade, the spread trade with Germany. Did the central bankers get in your way? Are you willing to blame any sense of underperformance on Federal Reserve officials, ECB officials, et cetera, et cetera? These people didn't go by the book and Bill Gross got run over because they did something new and original. Well, not necessarily. I mean, they didn't go by the book, and it's up to the portfolio manager to analyze what that new book is in terms of reading. Um, you know, for uh, five, six, seven, eight years, uh, quantitative easing has provided an opportunity for bond investors to take advantage of capital gains. Um, the question became, in terms of Germany versus the United States, you know, what would the effect of U.S. tightening uh, by the Federal Reserve and the ultimate, um, you know, exclusion of quantitative easing in the beginning of quantitative right. tightening, what would that do relative well, to what was happening with the ECB? And it, uh, the spread continued to widen and continues to widen even till today. And that's a, that's a very... Okay, long-term situation. But Bill, this is critical and critical going forward as you invest your own money and everybody else wants to know what you feel about central banks that got away from Phillips Curve theology 
over to balance sheet adjustment through Q quantitative easing and then onto some set of quantitative tightenings to come. Which of those two was the real harm? Was it the, the balance sheet dynamics or was it the death of the Philip curve dynamic? Well, I, I think it's basically both. In, in terms of the balance sheet, I find it very interesting, certainly in the U.S. with the Fed. Um, you know, the Fed expanded its balance sheet during quantitative easing from uh, approximately $1 trillion to approximately $4 trillion. Um, in a world in which credit in the United States was around $60 trillion. You know, to my way of thinking, back in 2007 and 2008, um, the Fed was in a highly levered situation relative to total credit. It was one trillion versus 60 mm -hmm. trillion or 60 to one. Um, they expanded that and basically equitized their portfolio to four trillion and that was a much levered situation. Now, uh, quantitative tightening, reducing that to some extent, although probably going to stop uh, in the next few quarters or so, um, you know, it perhaps is at a point where the leverage inherent in the Fed's balance sheet and the leverage inherent in the U.S. credit um, economy is um, is better. Well, uh, I, put it that way, Al although not necessarily satisfactory. So many times I've found uh, Bill Gross. I don't want to mention names here, but a lot of acclaimed managers, in whatever way, are shown the door, and then X number of months afterwards, whatever their play was, works out like a charm. Do you sense any kind of jump condition coming? where yields come up or those spreads normalize? I mean, is it going to be smooth functions over one year, two years, three years? Or do we get a jump condition and abruptness to some outcome this year, 2019? Well, we, we need to speak to different central banks, I suppose, in different countries in the, in the U.S. In the U.S., the Fed is at 2.5% uh, uh, in terms of Fed funds, if you assume inflation's at, one, at two, then you've got a half a percent uh, in terms of real interest rates, which to my way of thinking is about as high as you can go in a levered type of economy. In the rest of the world, you know, let's just take the ECB and take Japan as well. Um, with their zero percent interest rates or even negative interest rates in Germany all the way out to seven or eight years, um, you know, this is a very different situation and things haven't really changed. And I wonder uh, versus the U.S., you know, what that means for their economy. And as I've mentioned for many times on your program, Tom, the, the, the disadvantage in addition to potential inflation down the road, the disadvantage of negative interest rates and low interest right. rates in the rest well, of the world is that savers are disadvantaged and insurance companies and banks are disadvantaged. And so the savings function is at risk. This is really important, folks. I'm going to do one more question on this and then switch themes in this generous conversation with Bill Gross this morning, again, on Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio worldwide. We have negative interest rates. This was a huge theme at Davos in the, in the hallways at Bill Gross, a chronic nature to negative interest rates in Europe. It redounds on the U.S. as well. Is that something that goes to a breaking point? Or do you have an optimism that ECB in Europe as a political entity can extricate itself from these negative interest rates that don't help savers? Well, I, I think it will take time to observe, and haven't we had that for the last three, four, or five years? And, and what we've found, uh, certainly in, in the EZ in Europe, 
uh, with the ECB is that these rates right. are just enough uh, to keep growth above the line and just enough, uh, you know, to keep inflation at one uh, to two percent. You know, Japan for me, Tom, is the petri dish uh, because they've been doing this for ten or fifteen years. Right, and, right. Um, you, you know, an economist would have predicted that uh, if the government was buying up all of the debt uh, issued by its uh, treasury, or if the central bank was buying it, uh, that that would be quite inflationary. But it hasn't been. Right. And so, the, the the quandary going forward is for uh, other central banks: will this behavior? create inflation, and in my uh, context, will this uh, disadvantage savers to the point where the, the savings function and the investment function is severely right. disrupted? We welcome all of you on Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio Worldwide. Bill Gross announcing his retirement today from Janice Henderson. We're thrilled to bring him to you on Bloomberg at Surveillance. Bill Gross, I want you to speak to the Savers of America. You grew up Middletown, Ohio. You went out to San Francisco to get as far away from Tom Brady as is theoretically possible. (laughs) And Bill Gross, you're out in San Francisco. You did war duty in Vietnam, assisting the Tet Offensive, decorated for that, etc. And there was a time there where Savers could actually save. You go back to the 70s, it actually worked. You go back to the 80s, it actually worked. I want you to speak right now to our savers on television and radio who haven't gotten a fair deal in the Gilded Age. When did the savers finally get a break and actually get a real return? Well, to be fair, it's better now than it was a year or two years ago. Uh, They have a chance to uh, basically stay up with inflation with their money market uh, type of account. But, um, you know, for a long time it hasn't. And I suspect going forward, uh, if the Fed stops here, you know, there won't be the same advantage as you mentioned over the past uh, 20, 30, 40 years, all the way back to when I started in the early 1970s. And so what does that mean? Ultimately, it means to a saver that, um, you know, they fall behind. Pension funds fall behind. Individual savers fall behind in terms of retirement, education for the kids, et cetera. And it's only been the stock market um, that has been, uh, uh, you know, the savior in, in terms of their necessity to build up a nest egg. And many um, individuals, as you know, uh, don't invest in the stock market. And so, um, yeah, you've got to get the interest rate above the inflation rate in order to give savers, pension funds, insurance companies a, okay. a fighting chance to, to take care of their liabilities. That's a great summary, but do you anticipate that will occur or is there a permanence to our Gilded Age? The president is going to speak tomorrow night at a state of, a state of the union with a wide perception across all of politics that it's the very narrow haves and a huge body of have-nots that can't get a fair shake, whether fixed income or equity markets. Are we going to shift to some form of real return in fixed income and indeed persist with equity total returns? Yeah, I, I don't think so, Tom. Or, or if it does, it'll take a long, long time. Mm. I mean, what the Fed did in 2005 and six to raise Fed funds to 5% or 3% real or so uh, was to basically break the levered economy. Now, some would suggest that we're less levered now in terms of banks and capital, and, and we are. Uh, but the debt to GDP is still at 250% and climbing, and uh, around the world it's even higher. And so um, I think central 
banks have to be cognizant of the fact that a certain interest rate, you know, could break the global economy again. And is that uh, yeah. a, a realistic observation? Yes, but it's also a negative, as we've mentioned, for savings institutions to be able to pay off their liabilities going forward. One of these days, um, you know, pension funds, large pension funds, will simply say, uh, you know, three percent uh, is not enough. Uh, I've I've basically guaranteed five or six percent for my uh, uh, pension retirees, and uh, you know we're going to need some well, help here from the government. Well, we got every other city out there. You name the cities, everything but fancy Newport Beach is underwater. We've got serious actuarial assumptions in America that have gone wrong. How urgent is that? And when do the owners, the pension owners, the people not making the actuarial assumption, when do they say enough? fix this. I don't see that pressure out there, Bill. I don't see it either because it's a long-term problem and politicians and even the public you know, are, are want to observe a long-term problem. They tend to look for today as opposed to tomorrow. But I, I think ultimately it is, it is a problem. Uh, how might it be solved? It might be solved by this uh, melding of fiscal and monetary policy that we've seen in Japan and uh, actually in the United States and elsewhere. What does that mean? It, it means ultimately that the United States um, could, you know, issue debt to solve these problems, but, but uh, you know, have the central bank buy it back itself. And is that a negative? Is that a, a potential harm to the economy? Yeah. Certainly. But uh, what we've seen in Japan is that so far it's working. So ultimately, to me, a long-term forecast, I used to be really negative on this about right. the 50 or $60 trillion of liabilities with Social Security and health care and so on. On, but you know, the the Fed can basically buy it back, and if it's non-inflationary, which is the critical key, if it's non-inflationary, then perhaps they can pull a rabbit out of the hat. I I, I don't think so, but I think they might try. I'm Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. William Gross with us today. He retires from Janice Henderson. We're thrilled that he could join us for this extensive and special conversation. Bill Gross, I want to go back to the theory of the moment. I've got Markowitz's book on my desk from 1962, which is a bunch of fancy theory that you've written about at the CFA Institute. I think of Abby Joseph Cohn and others that have written about the architecture that all of our listeners and viewers rely on. Does that architecture still work? Is the efficient frontier still there? Does the sharp ratio still work and all the other mumbo jumbo the alchemy of the trade well i think it does but it, it's much less than it used to be because the um the financial markets have uh, become so sophisticated with uh you know and not only advanced theories but uh with uh, speed trading and and uh computerization right. and algos and so on but um, I think it still works, but to expect uh, information and sharp ratios to be uh, higher than one or one okay. and a half or what we uh, have done, uh, I, I think it's a little unrealistic, certainly in, in an era of low interest rates. This is then critical, harder. folks. You've got to understand this. Out at Pacific Investment Management Company, and I'm sure over at Janice Henderson, Mr. Gross had on his desk before the Bloomberg Terminal a Monroe trader, which is how he got his information advantage. Bill, are you suggesting that the information advantage for all of active management, equity, and indeed fixed income as well, has to give way to the wonderful John Bogle's passive investment? Please a comment on active versus passive and the legacy you know from Mr. Bogle. 
Well, I'm still a believer, believer in active management, and, and Jack and I would go back and forth on this. I've always been willing to acknowledge that uh, indexation's primary benefit, and Jack would have said this too, you know, is, is that it's low fees, and, and investors in some cases don't pay any fees now for index funds, whereas active management can charge 50, 100, 150 basis points, depending upon, um, you know, the risk asset itself. And so, um, you know, can active managers produce those types of returns Mm -hmm. to to compensate for those fees? I I think with interest rates as low as they are, and remember, Tom, that uh, low interest rates basically are the foundation for returns for uh, all other assets absent, uh, you know, euphoria, which we've, we've seen certainly in the past few years. Um, you know, the, the alpha, the information ratio, the sharps ratios, um, they're going to be much less than they were. And if they are, then active managers have got to lower their own fees mm-hmm. in recognition of their inability to return a proper rate of return to their investors. Bill, in the time that I've got left with you with Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio today, I want to touch upon your philanthropy. Do you still own any stamps or have you sold it all for medical research? <laughs> no, I still got to, I've got six auctions going forward. I've got... Uh, you know, the bulk of my stamp collection mm-hmm. is still to go. And it's, uh, it's a little uh, tear, I guess, uh, every auction that I have. But, you know, in the past 10 years since I started these auctions, uh, you know, probably 45 to $50 million to uh, philanthropic uh, institutions, right. including a, 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 a Smithsonian stamp uh, exhibit and post office in Washington, D.C., which is lovely. And so... Uh, you know, there's a lot more to come. I still have a few left. Um, I may right. keep one or two uh, uh, in the next few years. Now, one final question, if I can, Bill Gross. I would note the uh, the discussion that Gronk may retire from the New England Patriots. I guess Edelman will go forever. <laughs> but there's this guy, Tom Brady, who you have clearly shown a lack of affinity for over the years. Uh, you're not going out on top after a difficult track record at Janice uh, Anderson. Uh, Bill Gross, do you suggest that Mr. Brady take the high road and retire today and go out strong? No, I, I based upon last night's performance, I mean, Tom eats right. He, uh, he works out right. He has a belief that he can keep on going for another few years. And as a quarterback, um, he doesn't need to be fast. He needs to have a strong arm. So, um, you know, let the guy go. And uh, uh, evidently, uh, and perhaps going forward, he'll uh, be defeated in a Super Bowl and, and uh, cash in his chips. But he's got a lot of rings. And like I say, I've got a lot of rings, too. I'm very proud of uh, Total Return Concept. I'm very proud of the, you know, the innovative uh, assets that w- we were able to move into, like uh, mortgages and uh, financial futures and uh, tips and so on, which was really the, the basis for mm-hmm. performance in, in, in PIMCO. And so uh, I got a great career. I'm proud of it. Uh, last few years, um, you know, we'll, we'll uh, wipe those off the magic slate and uh, go forward having fun and uh, enjoying life. Bill Gross, thank you so much for these comments this morning on uh, philanthropy and there, of course, on active passive and as well on uh, the state of the economics, finance, and investment that we all live. Mr. Gross is with Janice Henderson. Uh, We greatly appreciate his attendance. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, 
or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. 